Okay, good morning everybody, good morning. Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, your mercies are new every morning, and though we deserve only punishment, you receive us as your children and provide for all our needs of body and soul. Grant that we may heartily acknowledge your merciful goodness give thanks for all your benefits, and serve you in willing obedience. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, I have to apologize because we're in here instead of in the fellowship hall. The reason is because in here I can use the microphone, and if you, have, if you can't tell, my voice is a little weak. And I also still have to do the Tiffany Heights service this afternoon, so I'm trying to save it the best I can. So I've got my fisherman's friend and my uh, water with lemon juice in it. So uh, let's look at the congregation at prayer. <clears throat> the verse of the week is from Psalm 19. Just in case you thought that we were never going to have a verse that was from the Old Testament, here you go. Psalm 19:12. Let's speak this together. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Okay. What's the answer to this question? Who can understand? Or in some translations, is who can discern? What's the answer? Who can understand or discern his errors? No one. No one. And that's the point. Uh, that's the whole point of this entire verse. Who can understand his errors? Nobody. And the... Uh, Ref, during the Reformation, this verse was used uh, in the Augsburg Confession when we talk about confession and absolution, which is, as it happens, the catechism part that we're still in and finishing up today. So, uh, the mandate used to be that when you go to private confession and absolution, you have to confess every single sin that you have ever committed between your last confession and, and the current confession. And um, any sin that you did not confess was not forgiven. So you had to remember every single thing that you had done. And the point of the Reformation, or part of it was, who can understand and discern his errors? Who knows all of the things that he has done? In fact, Martin Luther uh, drove his father confessor crazy because he would go and he would confess this whole litany of things he had done wrong. And then he would leave, and then he'd come back five minutes later and say, I have all these things that I need to confess that I forgot about the last time. And he was constantly in and out of the confessional until his priest finally said, all right, it's fine, just forget about it. Your sins are forgiven. Go do something else. And uh, so this is the point. Your, your consciences do not need to be duly, or uh, excuse me, unduly bound. Because who can discern his errors? Nobody can. So take comfort in that fact that you're going to sin, and a lot of the sin that you're going to commit, you're not even going to remember, which is why we say things like, I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what I've done, by what I've left undone. We're going to cover the whole gamut here because we know that you're not going to remember everything. Okay. So what's then uh, the response? Because we know that you can't remember these things, you can't discern your sins. What's the response? Cleanse me, O Lord, from my secret faults. Cleanse me from those sins that I don't remember, that I can't bring before you. I know that there are some. Cleanse me from them. Uh, okay, and that's, uh, that's confession and absolution right there. Nobody can remember everything, but you are a sinner. So what do you do? You cry out to God for mercy. Lord, I am a sinner. Kyrie eleison, have mercy on me. And the Lord says, yes, amen, your sins are forgiven. Okay, let's speak this again. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Okay, which are these sins which we know and feel in our hearts? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done anything wrong? Okay, this is a great 
little question and answer in preparation for private confession and absolution. Um, if you don't know what you should confess, here are some guidelines uh, that, that Luther puts forth. And this is, of course, piggybacking on the last question and answer, which was, before God we plead guilty of all sins, but before the pastor we plead guilty of those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Again, who can discern his errors? You don't have to confess everything. Just confess those things that you know and feel in your hearts. And now it's, what are you supposed to know and feel in your heart? Well, you look at the Ten Commandments. Those are going to be your guide. Because you know what God wants of you. So if you know what God wants of you, and you know what you've done, you can sort of line yourself up to where you ought to be, and then whatever the difference is, uh, that's something that should weigh on you. So basically, here's the thing. If the answer to any of these questions, i.e., are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, worker, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then confess those things. And here's the kicker, if the answer to any of those questions is no, then confess that you are deceitful. <laughs> because because it's always, you're always going to hit at least one of these things. And when you look at especially the vocations, are you a father and a mother? Or, excuse me, are you a father or a mother? Are you a son or a daughter? Are you a husband or a wife? If you are even one of those things, then you have to ask yourself, have I lived in that vocation the way that I ought to have lived in that vocation? If I am a son, have I been a good son? Have I honored my father and my mother the way that I ought to have done. And if not, then you confess. Okay? Same thing. If I am a husband, I look at the vocation. What is expected of me as husband? Have I cared for my wife? As Luther says, have I made her uh, miss me when I'm gone and have my return be a delight? Or have I been overbearing and uh, a micromanager? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Who's confessing this, is, this is just an example. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, you, you just look even ba at the basic thing. What is your vocation? What is your vocation? And have you lived up to the expectations of that vocation? And that, so it starts where you are and with who you are, and it expands outward. Uh, who are you? Well, you're a father, okay. Speci those are the specific things. Then it's just to get into the general category. Are, are you a Christian? <laughs> I mean, if the answer to that is no, uh, from anybody here, come see me after church today. We'll have a talk, okay? But uh, the answer should be yes. Are you a Christian? Okay, well then, what are you supposed to do as a Christian? Have you lived like a Christian? If not, come and confess. Okay, so anyway, that's the point of that. Questions? All right. Children, you may depart. No, if one sits down and starts to analyze oneself, making a modest attempt that leads to be honest about it, you really work yourself into a hole by identifying your sins because they're just Yes, and your sins are always going to be innumerable, and that's why, that's why you can plead guilty of all sins. And you can, you can plead guilty of all sins with a good conscience. You're never going to plead guilty of all sins and have God go, Oh, that's a bad confession, because I don't know if you really are guilty of all sins. I mean, come on, you're guilty of all sins, and it's, I mean, it's okay. It's not okay, okay. And then when it comes down to the particulars of that, the things that especially trouble you, measure your life. Look at, look at this thing. Look, like, look at your past week or your past day or even just your morning. Uh, and what are the things that really hit you, the, really, the things that really, really bother you, the individual things that come to mind like that, that sit in your head and sort of 
fester in your heart. I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done this, I should have said or done this differently. Those are the things then that when you come to private confession and absolution, you get great comfort from confessing because they're addressed individually. And you are addressed individually as a Christian uh, by the mouth and the hands of God that absolve you of those particular things as opposed to when you come to divine service and you say, I am guilty of all sins, and God says, okay, you're guilty of all sins. Yes, I forgive you. I mean, that's still forgiveness. You're being forgiven either way, but there's, uh, the question is, where's the, it's a, it's a question of comfort. Uh, and sometimes, uh, when you're confessing generally, yeah, I'm a sinner, I've not done the things I ought to have done, uh, ba 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 the general confession and the general absolution doesn't really hit you in the particulars that are really bothering you. And there's really no replacement for the comfort that you get from confessing the particulars and having the particulars themselves be addressed and forgiven. Nancy, this is from the bottom. Yes, okay. Now, what did I want to do? <laughs> uh, shameless plug. Carolyn and I went to see the community play last night. Drinking habits, it's double entendre because it's nuns. It's pretty funny. It was, it was entertaining. Uh, so there's another show today at 2 o'clock. If you haven't gone to see it, you should go to see it. Plus you get to see Dwayne Nauman dressed as a priest, which I thought was funny. Because he, <laughs> he, he called and asked me for uh, wardrobe help. <laughs> I couldn't help him. I didn't have anything in his size. My clothes don't really fit his, but... I helped them the best I could, but it was funny, we had a good time, so if you're free this afternoon and you want to go, hey, go support the State Theater, go see, go see the community, uh, community play. Okay. Yeah, it was a good time, it was a good time. Okay, plug over, they didn't pay me to say that, I just enjoyed it, so I'm sharing it with you. Um, let's look at Luke. We're on Station 5. On Station 5. Um, this is Simon of Cyrene. And this is, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about this. Simon of Cyrene. So, Luke chapter 23, just one verse. Chapter, or verse 26. And they led him away. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Okay, now that's Luke. It doesn't really say much. Simon of Cyrene has one verse. There's this man, his name is Simon. He's from Cyrene, he's here. They grab him, they give him the cross. I've seen depictions of that uh, and portrays him as a black person. Mm -hmm. Is Cyrene, is that Northern Africa or something? Yes, yeah, I think it's, I think Cyrene, is in modern-day Libya. I think that's what they say. So there is, that's what people think. I'm not really convinced one way or the other. I honestly don't care what he looked like. Um, it's possible because he was from Cyrene. He was from that region that, that's, that he had darker skin. But it's also possible that he didn't because there was a large Jewish population there too that had migrated. So it's sort of six of one half and dozen of the other. It's one of those things that you can think about and argue about but doesn't really matter in the end. <laughs> but yeah, it's a possibility. It is. Um, okay, so that's Luke. Basically, it's bare bones. All, you, all, all that you get is that this guy is... Uh, from Cyrene, he's there and he gets the cross to help Jesus. And uh, not willingly. So now let's look at Mark. Because Mark, this is another reason why I love Mark so much, is because Mark includes these little tidbits, these little nuggets. And uh, you know, you read, if you read Matthew and Mark together, um, and you compare the two, they're so similar. And uh, 
know, the basic understanding is that Matthew wrote his gospel first, and that Mark then reads Matthew's gospel, and he knows Matthew's gospel, and then he writes his gospel to a particular audience. So there are a lot of stories that Matthew uh, recounts that Mark recounts in a similar way, sometimes abbreviated, because he says, well, you've heard this in Matthew's gospel, I don't need to repeat it again. But then he does things to Matthew's gospel, like he heightens the language, like we talked about last week with the kranzo. Kranzo in Matthew just means, hey, you're shouting. But kranzo in Mark means, oh, you're, you're a demon. You're screaming like a demon. Um, and all the emotions are heightened. The speed of the gospel is increased. Matthew's, you sort of get, you know, Jesus is going through the countrysides. Uh, and he's teaching, and you sort of, you feel like it takes three years for him to start his ministry and to ascend. Mark's gospel, you don't get that at all, because everything in Mark's gospel is, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. So Jesus just is, basically from the time that he's picked up out of the water and chucked into the wilderness, he's just bouncing back and forth from one place to the other with no rest. And that's the whole sense of Mark's gospel. It's high tension, it's high action, it's high energy. It's great, but he also includes little details like this in Mark 15, uh, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Yeah, okay, listen to all of that. I mean, it's, just, it's still just one verse, but you get so much more in it. So what's the first thing that you notice here that's different? It mentions his sons. Yeah, it mentions his sons. Now, here's the big question. Why bother mentioning his sons. Who's the gospel written for? Sure, Gentiles, okay, but Gentile what? The gospels, just in general, all four of the gospels, their genre, their literary genre, is not history. So you don't look at the gospels and say, this is 100% nothing but a purely historic account, because it isn't. It's not like somebody sat down, like a pagan historian, and said, I just want to record some of these things just to be factually accurate and make sure that all generations to come can read this and intellectually know that these are some things that happened. That's not what the Gospels are. There are, his, there are uh, events that historically did take place and that are recorded here, uh, but the primary purpose of the Gospels is to preach Jesus Christ. And, and you get that in John's Gospel. These things are written that you may believe. Why are the Gospels written? That you may believe. Many more signs and wonders Jesus did that are not included in this book. But these things are written that you might believe. That's the purpose of the Gospels. To preach Christ. To give you the words of Christ. To give you Christ himself. So, that being said then, the primary readers of the Gospel text are going to be Christians. Now yes, Mark's Gospel is one that's di uh, directed towards the Gentiles, and Mark's, Mark is sort of, uh, he's with Paul. Mark and Luke and Paul, the, those guys do a lot. Pastor? Yes. <clears throat> one time, uh, Pastor Selmar and I were talking about that, and he said, there were all kinds of things that could have been put into the scripture that wasn't. What was put in the scripture was what was necessary to lead us to faith. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that that's true. Everything that you need is here. Yeah. If you want to read a historic account of what happened in Jesus' day, go read Josephus. Yeah. That's history, and it reads like it. <laughs> it's sort of dry. <laughs> but the gospel is not dry. The gospel is full of meat, it's full of juice. You bite into the gospel and you get a mouthful and you keep chewing that mouthful for the rest of your life. Um, so there's more in there than just history. So, um, Mark with Paul, Paul is the apostle that goes to whom? Now this is Carolyn's answer, the Gentiles. Paul goes to the Gentiles. Peter and John go to the Jews. 
Matthew's gospel is a gospel that's written for the Jews. John's gospel is a gospel written for the Jews, but from the perspective of the priestly lineage, he comes from a line of priests. So that's why you know, Mark is depicted as an eagle. One of these is the eagle, yeah, that's John. The eagle is John because the eagle sees with eagle eyes. Somebody was telling me, it was Luann Heights, we were bowling on uh, Friday night, and it was her, her great niece, and nephew, I think that's her great, great niece and nephew. They were, they've been here visiting the past week. They were on spring break. And uh, Wyatt, her great nephew, he said, hey, on our way here, we saw the coolest thing. We were driving on the highway and a bald eagle just went right down in front of the car into the water, the flood water at the side of the highway and came up with a fish and just flew away right in front of us. And that's the Gospel of John. When you look at that water, do you see the fish? No, you don't. You don't see the fish because you see the surface of the water. But when the eagle looks at the water, the eagle sees through the water and into the water, and the eagle sees the depths. John is the eagle because John looks at the Old Testament scriptures with eagle eyes and he plumbs the depths and he brings out all of this stuff, which is why John's Gospel, uh, co coincidentally, ends up being one of the most, uh, I don't want to say convoluted, but one of the most difficult of the Gospels to read and understand. It's very uh, philosophical in many ways. It draws on the teachings of the priests and expands on all of that to show Christ in the Old Testament. That's also why it is... Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sort of in their own camp called the Synoptic Gospels. And then there's John, who's off all the way by himself. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of follow the same progression, and John doesn't. I mean, at least half of John's Gospel takes place in the upper room with all the teachings of Jesus and the washing of the disciples' feet and the high priestly prayer, all of these things. Uh, so John sort of speeds up right at the beginning and then draws out the whole passion or pre-passion narratives in the upper room. So anyway, this is more than you ever wanted to know and none of it's actually related. But anyway, so Mark is writing to Gentiles and you know, primarily Gentile Christians. Now, of course, there are going to be uh, people who are reading the gospel and who aren't Christians and who read that and say, oh, wow, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they become Christians. Um, but because this is stuff that is read within Christian communities, when you go look at any of the Gospels, they include things like names of people who you think are obscure and inconsequential, and names of places that you think are obscure and inconsequential, and phrases such as, and it is still there to this day, or, and for this reason, they do it this way because it falls in line with whatever. But for the early Christians, it wasn't inconsequential because these were names of places and people that they could go to see, to visit, to speak with, and corroborate the whole story that they had heard in the gospel. So when you hear things like the road to Emmaus, it mentions Cleopas. You've never really heard of Cleopas before that time. But now all of a sudden he's there and he's a main player. It's like when you're watching a movie and it's in the final act and they start throwing new characters at you and you say, how am I supposed to care about the new characters? How is there any time for these people to be developed? This is too late in the game to be introducing me to new people. I've just gotten to know the guys you introduced at the beginning. But the Gospels do it. Here's some new people. And the reason that they're there is because Cleopas and his this disciples with him saw Jesus. And you know that from other places, Jesus, many more miracles Jesus did, and he appeared to many of the brethren. Well, who's one of the brethren he, he uh, appeared to? Cleopas. So if you really want to know if Jesus really did appear to him, don't take Matthew's word for it. Don't take Luke's word for it. Go talk to Cleopas, and he'll tell you all about it. Okay? So this is sort of the sense. That you're, they're dropping names here, so you can go and talk to those people. So... With that in mind, Simon of Cyrene 
Mark records the names of his two sons. Why do you think he records the names of his two sons? Luke doesn't, but Mark does. Which means there's something important about those two boys. So, to answer your question, we're going to look at Romans chapter 16. There's two. So Romans is the first one. 16.13. Romans 16.13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Okay. There it is. Paul's, now remember, the epistles of Paul are just that. Epistles. They're letters. He's writing letters to churches. Okay. Uh, now, can you read that one more time? Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. All right, what's the name? Rufus. Rufus. What's the name of the son of Simon of Cyrene? Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus. Okay, there's one. So you see Rufus. Now, what's the deal with Rufus? Oh, well, he's also mentioned in the book of Romans. I guess he's maybe a companion of Paul. Well, let's check in the book of Acts, though. Acts 11.20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, now, who writes the book of Acts? Luke. Luke writes the book of Acts. Who is Luke a companion of? Which apostle is he a companion of? Paul. Luke is a companion of Paul, and he's recording words about a couple boys from Cyrene who come and preach about Jesus. Now, I wonder who those boys could be. Alexander and Rufus, who Mark records. Mark is also a missionary to the Gentiles. Mark is also a companion of Paul. So Mark, Luke, and Paul, all missionaries to the Gentile communities, are all mentioning these boys from Cyrene. It's not a coincidence. There are never any coincidences in Scripture. Everything in Scripture is intentional. So, Mark is naming these people, Alexander and Rufus, because, as uh, the early tradition states, those men were with Simon. Uh, Simon is most likely a Jew, which explains why a man from Cyrene is in Jerusalem, because Passover says you have to come to Jerusalem. You have to make the pilgrimage to the temple because this is the place where Passover happens. That's why Pilate is in Jerusalem too, by the way, because remember, Pilate hates Jerusalem. In fact, Pilate hates the fact that he has to be in the Middle East at all. That's a punishment. Uh, you get sent to Judea when you've been bad, and that's the place where you're sent so that you fail, so that the emperor can say, that's the third strike, now you're done. So he's, he doesn't really want to be there, and it's a punishment for him to be there. So he doesn't really want to be in Jerusalem at all, because that's, that's the central hub. But maybe a week or two or something ago, I said Pilate has to be there, because Rome occupies Judea. It's a Roman province. So anytime that there's a big festival or a holiday, Rome has to be there to represent. You know, he's the guy in the parade. Hey, I'm here, don't worry. So he has to come back to Jerusalem. So when you, when you take a step back and you look at this bigger picture about everybody congregating here for the Passover, it really does sort of make the crucifixion of Jesus this more, even more miraculous that all of these things are converging on this one point right now and uh, taking off for the salvation of man. So anyway, Simon of Cyrene, probably a Jew, that's why he's there, which means he's probably there with his family. Uh, the names of uh, wives are generally not recorded, so anytime they are, that's a sign that you should be paying attention, that those are important women. But you'll read in the, or you'll hear in the gospel reading for today, which is the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, that there are 5,000 people, men, there were 5,000 men, not including women and children. So uh, 
Simon of Cyrene is named and counted. He is there. It's highly likely that his wife is there too, which then um, would assist us in reading Paul's letter to the Romans when he talks about her mother, or his mother, excuse me, and then also his two boys are with him, and they're, they're all right there. And he's just trying to get through. And the Romans grab him. Why? Because at this point they realize Jesus can't actually carry this. He cannot physically carry this cross by himself, the full walk of the road. He's too weak. So he needs help. So they get this Simon of Cyrene to help him. And it's just sort of by chance that they reach out and they grab somebody and they say, hey, you, you're going to help us here. And uh, again, this is where Mark's gospel is so great. Because in Mark's gospel, the word, and now I'm, I'm using the New King James, and it says they compelled a certain man. And this word in the Greek is beautiful because it's really, you get the force that it, it's compelling. You're grabbing somebody and you're forcing them to do something that they do not want to do. Simon doesn't want anything to do with this. But he is forced to. The Roman officials grab him and say, hey, you just got roped into service, guy. You're going to help. And you can't really say no when the Roman uh, soldiers come and tell you to do something. So he's there. He walks the whole walk with Jesus. And you better believe that his boys and his wife are there too, walking as well, because their husband, their father is right there. Now they're all roped into it. Um, so the whole tradition is that they become Christians from watching Jesus and watching him die and being at the foot of the cross and then hearing the words of the gospel and saying, ah, oh, this man Jesus, yes, yes, that's right. And somehow or other, they meet up with Paul, um, and then they, uh, they assist him in the mission work. So anyway, it's sort of a really beautiful thing. Incidentally, this is my theory. There's another time when we see that people convert to Christianity by watching Jesus. Can you think of maybe what it might be? In the Passion narrative, in the Passion narrative. At the cross. Well, yeah, at the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and there's a great little thing. So, the uh, the centurion, mm -hmm. the centurion says, "Truly, this man was the Son of God." And that take it or leave it, because it's it's maybe a confession of faith, but it's also maybe not. Because you could say, well, he said he was the Son of God, and now there's this eclipse, and the ground is shaking, and there's all this. Yeah, he really was son, the Son of God. He was what he said in the sense that, boy, he was more powerful than we thought. Or it's a confession of faith that says, this guy was who he said he was. I believe this. Truly, he was indeed. You know, fall on your face prostrate now, like the thief on the cross. Ah, Lord, remember me. <clears throat> One of the biblical... Uh, movies about it that include the the Passion of Christ has that quotation in it, and the actor that does it is John Wayne, which I thought was you know big John Wayne making the confession there. Trivia. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. National hero. Yeah. Uh, Next to Charleston Hesse, you know, Charleston <laughs> John Wayne. Yeah, that's right. Who does God send when he wants to set his people free? Charlton Heston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so here's the part two, though, of the centurion. You thought it was over at the cross, but it isn't. He comes back. When Jesus rises from the dead, he leaves the tomb. Pilate stations guards, plural, at the tomb because the Jews make him. Hey, his people are going to steal the body. You better put some guards there. And at that point, Pilate just says, fine, whatever, get out of my hair. I'll put some guards there. And he sends two unlucky fellows. Yeah, go stand at this tomb. Make sure nobody takes the body. 
Those two are out cold. And Pilate wants a report. And in the Greek, it says, he inquired of the centurion. There's a direct article. It isn't, he asked a centurion. He asked one of the guards, even. It wasn't one of the guards. He asked the centurion. Now, the only other place where you get to see the centurion, where one specific centurion is so important, is right there at the foot of the cross. That centurion who makes the confession. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Pilate now doesn't know what's going on. He's gone. The guards are out. Get that centurion. He's the one that said something. He knows something. I want to talk to him. So there's that centurion. A Roman official at the foot of the cross, seeing the crucifixion of Christ, seeing the majesty of God, knowing about the empty tomb, he's a Christian. Now, early Christian tradition also says that uh, Pontius Pilate's wife became a Christian as well, but probably not Pontius Pilate. I had this really grand theory once. I was going to write a big paper about it, about how, well, you know, Maybe Pontius Pilate does become a Christian. He does not. He doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He sees all the same things everybody else sees. He washes his hands. His wife has had the visions, you know. And tradition says she was a Christian. And then he summons that specific centurion who talks to him. Maybe all of that did something to him. Now. I don't know. There's not enough there to write a paper, which is why I didn't. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of cool. But anyway, so there's the centurion. It would almost make you think that uh, Pontius Pilate, we don't really know final outcome. But after Jesus showed from the dead, you'd almost <clears throat> think that Pontius Pilate would be in the state of denial to a degree that, you know, he. In, in essence, was responsible for Jesus going ahead and being crucified. But, but you think that, you know, I mean, it's probably good we don't know, you know, and that thing, but. Yeah. I mean. He was the one that was guilty. Probably Pilate would have been to a degree. He basically was wanting to get out of it and see he his hands up and that was it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's guilty to a degree. That's the argument that the Jews in Acts try to make. Well, us? No, we didn't do it. It was the Romans. They made us do it. You know? And Peter says, no, you did it. Why did you do it? Because you're the ones that came and said, we have a law, and by that law, this man must die. You are the ones that told Pilate, hey, we have no friend but Caesar, which is really sort of, I mean, come on. Look at all of the stuff they've said about Caesar. Look at all of, you, you love Caesar now, but you didn't a week ago when you were rebelling and speaking harsh words against him. So they change their tune and they do it all just so that they can get Pilate to crucify Jesus because then they think, well, we didn't, we didn't, where are you? But they're the ones that also say, let his blood be upon us. Pilate doesn't want the blood on his hands. Innocent blood, that's bad. That's taboo. You can't have innocent blood on your hands. You're going to get cursed. The Pontius, is that a first name or is that an adjective of Pilate? Uh, that's a name. First name. Yeah. There's, we, could, we could have a whole class just talking about Roman names. It's kind of cool. There was a, uh, a class that I took in college that was uh, about the religions of the classical period, so from the Greeks and the Romans and all the different things. And we spent a whole class, um, whole power lecture, just on Romans and the names and how they choose the names and the family names. And it's pretty cool. But yeah, Pontius is a name. Pontius Pilatus. Um, you can see it on the, there's, his signet ring was just found. And it says uh, Pilatus. I think Pontius is on it as well. Pontius Pilatus. Um, anyway, we're way off track. <laughs> so, 
this is, I mean, this, this whole thing, the whole Via Dolorosa, the whole passion narrative, all of this is indicative of something called the theology of the cross. And what the theology of the cross says is that God makes his greatest good known in the midst of the greatest weakness or greatest sorrow. And, it, you know, obviously, theology of the cross, it derives its name from the greatest evil in all of history that was used for the greatest good in all of history, the cross. But it goes along with the idea that, excuse me, God makes his strength manifest in weakness. God is a God of paradoxes. In order to be strong, you have to be weak. In order to be first, you have to be last. And uh, here you see it. He receives his cross. That's weak. He can't even carry that cross. Somebody has to help him. That's weak. But his greatest strength is made manifest in the weakness of Christ, in the frailty of flesh. I mean, if God really wanted to come and save us, why didn't he come down with flaming chariots and trumpets and everything and just kick down the door of creation and say, hey guys, I'm here. Let's go. And he doesn't. What does he do? He takes this on him. This flesh. Who wants this? Frail flesh. And he takes that on. In the frailty of human weakness, God's might is made manifest in the person of Christ. So here, uh, Christ, even now, he, he can't carry the cross by himself. But he still goes willingly. And uh, now here is a really interesting point. Um, you hear talk about type and anti-type. We talk about that a lot. Who's the type of Christ and who is Christ the anti-type of? One of the big ones is, of course, Moses. Moses is a type of Christ. Leading people from bondage to freedom. Leading people from death to life. Remember, there's only ever, there only is one story of scripture. Death and resurrection. Everything in the whole Bible is death and resurrection. And it all points to Jesus. Because in Jesus is death and resurrection. So Moses. Now we're going to look at Exodus here. There's a great comparison here. Between this station, Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus. And the person of Moses. And here, in this Via Dolorosa, you see the fulfillment of Moses. Again, you've seen it already a lot of times. But here's a big one. So, uh, is Exodus 17. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 13. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Okay. Now you see this. Moses wins the battle like this. The people of Israel are in the war with the Amalekites. God tells them, you will be victorious. I will make my power known to you only when Moses' hands are outstretched. How is God's power made known? Like this. <laughs> and you know, sometimes you can look at some of the things that God says to the Israelites and go, well, that seems sort of arbitrary, doesn't it? Hey, yeah. Pick up your hands, you win a battle. Okay. And it's <laughs> but when you start realizing why he does it, you know, everything is everything teaches. Everything teaches, everything points to Christ. You, you want to win the battle, you'll win the battle. But you have to win the battle my way. You have to win the battle with me. And I'll show you how to do it. 
arms outstretched, and he can't do it. Moses can't do it. I mean, I don't blame him. Have you ever tried to stand there like this and hold your arms up? You can put them out and you, you think, oh yeah, I'm pretty hot stuff, I can do this, this isn't that hard. And then you do it for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes and your arms start to go down <laughs> because it's hard, it's hard to do. So Moses can't even do it by himself. The Israelites can't even win their salvation by Moses. And that's the point, he's gotta have people come and hold his arms up so that he can keep his arms up outstretched. And victory is won in outstretched arms. Now, fast forward to the passion. The victory of all history, of all time. The victory over sin and death and the power of the devil is won in the weakness of a man who on his way to death can't even hold his own burden and whose arms are outstretched. This is victory. The weakness of flesh, arms outstretched upon the cross, angels ascending and descending in the vision of Jacob. This is victory. And it's victory not over your across-the-pond neighbors. It's not against the Amalekites. It's not against the Egyptians. It's not against the Babylonians or the Assyrians. It's not against the Greeks or the Romans. It's against the enemies of the spirit. It's against Satan. It's against the demonic horde. It's even against you. You win the battle against yourself. And it is, your life is a battle constantly, it's a struggle. The new man wars against the old. As St. Paul says, the good that I would do is the thing that I don't do. And the thing that I do not want to do is the very thing that I do. That's the war that's won in the outstretched arms of this man here. So where uh, Moses requires others to hold his hands up, so too Christ has Simon of Cyrene come in to fulfill the picture of Moses. He's got this guy coming in, helping him bear the burden on his way to victory. But ultimately, um, as is the case with Moses, who, who has the victory? Is it Moses who has the victory? Did the Israelites win because of Moses or because of the guys helping Moses? No. That's always the thing. It's never about Moses. It's never about the people who come and help Moses. It's not about Simon of Cyrene. All of that fulfills the type that is Moses. But the main thing is that it's always God who does the work. Um, in midweek, we're going through the uh, plagues of Egypt right now. And you get all of this stuff building up to it with Moses. And God, God comes to him and he says, hey, Moses, how'd you like to go back to Egypt? <laughs> Moses says, eh, no thanks. God says, I wasn't really asking. You're, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going you're gonna to bring back... You're going to bring back my people. And here's how you're going to do it. I will give you my words to speak. I will give you my name to use. Throw your staff down. Put your hand into your cloak. Touch the water. Turn it to blood. Who's doing it? Is it the greatness of Moses? Of course not. I mean, and you really start to understand that when you look at how old Moses is. He's something like 80 years old. I mean, Charlton Heston, sorry, sorry guy, I mean, he looks good, he looks good, but uh, Moses is 80 years old, and he's got to go to Egypt, he's got to face off with Pharaoh, he's got to do all these things, he's got to take all those people back, I mean, let's be honest, if anybody thinks that Moses is do anything, doing anything of his own strength, you are sorely misled. It's like Abraham. Abraham was how old when he had his first child? He was a hundred years old. I asked the midweek kids, <laughs> I said, how many people do you know that are a hundred years old and are having their first child? And one of them said, I don't think I even know anybody a hundred years old. <laughs> and that's the point. Again, God makes his strength manifest in weakness. His strength is not Moses' strength. 
His strength is Moses' weakness. Because then you know that it isn't Moses that is speaking. It isn't Aaron that is speaking. It isn't Moses that's making a serpent or making leprous hands or sending flies or lice or anything. It's God. That's what it's always about. It's not about Moses holding up his hands. It's about Christ, the victory that is in Christ. Everything teaches. This is, again, you're talking about Jacob and his vision. What's the point of all of this? What's the point of Jacob seeing the vision of Christ and not understanding it and then wrestling with Christ and finally realizing it and then having this sacramental, this sign in the flesh in his hip? What's the, what's the point of all of that? Is God just a sadist or what? The point is that it teaches. It points. What's the point of the Passover? It's all about Jesus. So all of this stuff is pointing right now to this moment here. Jesus on his way to the cross. And he goes willingly too. And this is one thing that I really like. There's a, there's a quote here. Christ goes willingly to his own demise, which is stunning to, to us. How many of you are willingly going to walk to your own demise? Like sheep led to the slaughter. Well, there's a Puritan, an old Puritan writer, Thomas Watson. Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Christ goes more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. And it's true. It's so true. You've always got this little voice that says, oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go to church. You can stay home. You don't need that. Oh, you want to do that sin. You want to take that fruit. You know you do. Yeah, I do. I do. But I can't. I shouldn't. And there's always this war. And you never go willingly. You always go kicking and screaming. And sometimes God drags you by the scruff of the neck. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and you're just sort of following along, being dragged along, really. It's not even your own. when you get a good artist. So, someone like Albrecht Dürer. First of all, one of the things that Albrecht Dürer does in these woodcuts of the Passion is he makes sure that every perspective always leaves a spot for you. So that when you look at this thing, you're in a position, looking at it, that you could be a part of. When the crowd is screaming for Jesus' crucifixion, there's a spot there for you to stand so that it brings you into this whole passion narrative, that you're a part of all of these events. That people who swing hammers, people who raise Christ up, people who take him down, put him in the tomb, there's always a spot for you. That you start and you end with Christ, because he is all in all to you. But then with that particular depiction, that ties in perfectly with something I mentioned last week about Abraham and Isaac. What's, again, what's more miraculous about Ab the, the story of Abraham and Isaac sacrificing his son? What is more miraculous? That Abraham had faith in the resurrection to the point where he said, yeah, you, you guys just stay here. Me and the boy are going to go up there, but the two of us will be back. Knowing God said, kill him. Don't worry, we'll be back, both of us, because God's going to raise him from the dead. What's more miraculous? That faith or the willingness of the Son to be bound. The willingness of the Son to submit to the will of the Father, to let himself be bound on the altar. And you see that in, in this Albrecht story, that he does, he just lays there like this, he knows what's happening. He says, thy will be done. This is how it has to happen. I'm willing to be bound. I'm willing to be weak. Because that's how salvation is won. 
there's a point there. Some of the cults use that willingness, that point you're making about Isaac there, to lure people into their their cult because they transmit that idea that this is the way. And I'm not making my point clear, I guess, but that that same attitude, that, that willingness that Isaac had, they sell that point that they have in the cult so that those people willingly, willingly come. They're not, they're not coerced into that. They come willingly like that. Now look at Isaac. Look at Isaac. He was so great. Why can't you be more like Isaac? Isaac was willing to do it. Why can't you be? Because Isaac is a picture of Jesus and I'm not. <laughs> and the people thought that David Koresh was that Jesus personified in their midst almost. And, you know, I mean, that's perverted theology, but, but, but that was a mindset that, that those people had. shortage of that. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's no shortage of that. There never has been, though. I mean, there's nothing new. There are those who will come to you preaching, preaching this message. Christ talks about this. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd, but there's only one shepherd. There are many who try to be shepherds. There are many robbers who come in the, in the night and try to take away the sheep. There are many who preach a message that is contrary to the message of the gospel, to the message of the church. And um, on the one hand, it's sort of, it's the pastor's responsibility to jealously guard over his sheep. If any number of you want at any point, I'm not gonna throw churches under the bus, so I'll speak generally. If, if any of you want to get up and leave the Lutheran Church and go to, say, one of the surrounding evangelical churches because you think it's more fun, because you like the people better. At the end of the day, I'll let you go because I can't control what you do. But you better believe that I'm not going to let you go without sitting you down and talking. Because I am a jealous shepherd. I am jealous for my flock. I care for my flock. And if my flock wishes to go astray, I'm going to do my best to make sure that they don't. That's on the pastor. To continue teaching, teaching preaching, and administering the sacraments to, for the strength of his flock keep you grounded. Why do we come to Bible class? It's not because I'm so great and I'm entertaining. It's not like you're here to see a good show. You're here because you're being grounded. You're here because this is part of the Christian faith, is the teaching. How are disciples made? Think of Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. How do you make disciples? Step one, you Baptize them. Step two, you teach. You baptize, you teach. Yeah. So, I'm going to keep teaching you. <laughs> if you ever think that you know it all, come and see me. I'll teach you some more. And if I ever think that I know it all, I'll come to see you. And you can teach me that I don't. can't see the numbers. Last night, we went to the First Church of Christ uh, for supper, and hardly anyone spoke to us, and we got a meal and sat down and ate, and then this guy came in. I'm assuming he was the preacher, and he started talking about all kinds of things, and 
priest and he said, I'm assuming you're a sister in the faith. And I said, uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. <laughs> he kind of stopped his spiel about then, and we just talked about him. Sure. Now, I, I do know the guy there from Ministerial Alliance. I, do, I really like him. He's a nice guy. He's very enthusiastic. He, was, I, he said that you were really one of the best. Oh, well, that's awful kind of him. <laughs> I, actually, I, I have to confess, gosh, I, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, I have to confess, the first time that I met him, I came home to Carolina and I said, boy, he is so nice, and he's so enthusiastic. I bet you I could make a Lutheran out of him. <laughs> so after the one morning down the coffee where we all got our mommy, <laughs> someone in the group brought up, they counted up and they said that there was nine churches in the community that says, you know what that means. No, what? That means no one can get along. Because <laughs> they all have a different perspective. What? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I heard a story of this community, and a guy got <clears throat> Lutheran. A Lutheran got called there to Third Lutheran Church of whatever the name of the town was. Some small town in Iowa, I think. Yeah, we'll make it. We'll make fun of Iowa. <laughs> so he gets called to some small town in Iowa, Third Lutheran Church. And he gets there, and on the same street, First Lutheran, Second Lutheran, Third Lutheran. And he said, Oh, what's the deal? What's the deal? And they come, his freshman said, Well, Pastor, we all used to be First Lutheran, but then we put in some new carpeting and Boy, oh boy, there were a lot of people that didn't like the green carpet because they wanted red carpet. So they left. And they were the ones that made Second Lutheran Church. And then Second Lutheran Church did some renovations and they didn't like the organ that they brought in. So then we came here, Pastor, and we made Third Lutheran Church. So, so you know, we're the good ones. And this guy said, oh, oh you're the good ones. Okay. This, but there's three... I mean, talk about not being able to get along. Look, here's the deal about the church, okay? Not everybody gets along with everybody else. That's human nature. Not everybody gets along with everybody else. You're not going to get along with everybody in this congregation. Not everybody here is going to be your bosom friend, okay? That's okay. That's okay. But, but, you're a Christian. You walk the way of life. And that means you have to at least pretend like you get along with everybody. Because that's what you're called to do, but also because it makes my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> okay? Uh, no, but, but for real, not everybody gets along, and that's okay. Um, I have some very significant theological differences. We all have some very significant theological differences with just about every other church in this whole region. Everybody knows <laughs> when the Lutheran pastor is making visits, because I wear my cassock, and I have a big old crucifix that I hang off of my, around my neck, and I'm just, well, here I am, I mean, I'm friendly as can be, I'll, you want to you stand and talk, that's fine, but nobody's going to look at that and go, oh, I, bet, I wonder if that's the new Baptist pastor. <laughs> you know? like, here we are, and we're sort of on our own here, and you know, that's okay, that's okay, I th it's an opportunity, really. it's an opportunity, because we're all on our own. We've got all of our evangelical brothers and sisters, and all right, that's fine. But, uh, you know, we got the real body of the blood. We got some stuff that you don't have. And I'm glad that you believe in Jesus, and that's all, that's all great. But, hey, listen, come down to our neck of the woods, because we'll give you some great stuff. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, so here's the thing about the ministerial alliance, and this is obviously we're done. Um, <laughs> the Ministerial Alliance is great, and I love it. Um, I love that we meet at McDonald's, because who goes to McDonald's? Everybody. So everybody sees all of these pastors out in public, 
And um, that's good, you know. People, people have to see you. You can't hide in your office. They have to see you out. They have to see you walking down to the nursing home. I was walking down there too. It was a real nice day. I was in my cassock and everything. I was marching down. And this guy pulled up. He said, Father, do you need a ride? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just enjoying the day. And he went, are you sure? Why would you want to walk? Because it's a nice day. And because I want to make sure that people see that I'm not hiding in my office. I'm out and about. I walk places. I go to visit people. Okay? We meet at McDonald's. It's great. You get an Egg McMuffin, drink some coffee, <laughs> and talk with, talk with everybody else. Everybody sees you doing it. Um, but, and it's also a way for us all to, to help, you know. We, we disagree theologically. I'm, please don't ever take communion from the Methodists. Because it's, they don't believe that it's the body and the blood. Like, doesn't mean they're not nice people, but... There are differences there, but that also doesn't mean we can't work together. Look at this. Look at this thing at First Christian, the Red Cross shelter there. There's an announcement in the bulletin about this too, so this is now a plug. There's a, the Ministerial Alliance put together a whole rotation for uh, meals. They need, they need evening meals. So we put together a whole rotation. Every church is on that list. Now that's something we can do. That's something the Ministerial Alliance can do. We're all Christians. Um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna debate that point right now. But you know, we might not all worship together. We might not all understand the reality that it is the body and blood of Christ. The reality that baptism does something to you, it's not your doing something for God. We might not all understand that and so we don't do services together. But it doesn't mean that we can't Act like we get along. Doesn't mean we can't shake hands in public. Doesn't mean we can't talk. Doesn't mean we can't all help out at the food pantry or the Red Cross shelter. I'm not going to I'm not gonna look at somebody who's asking for help and say, Well, are you one of those Methodists? <laughs> you know, are you from First Christian? Because we don't associate with those kinds. No, it's it's fine. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, Nancy. <laughs> okay, any questions? All right. Well, uh, we'll continue next week, <laughs> and I'll see you in church. <laughs>